one of my favorite restaurants, Flower and Water here oh, in yeah. the city. I love it, yeah. You know, they have two permanent beers on draft year-round, and we're one of the two. Uh, when we ate there and one night, and my fiancé went into labor six hours later. Um, wow. So that was the last meal we all had before we had the baby. And then it was the first meal that we had after we had the baby. And, you know, eating So you must have went chatting. in there and said, where the hell did you put in that pasta? <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they actually said it happens all the time. So. <laughs> From ESPM 155 AC Studios in Berkeley, California, this is The Hoptastic Voyage a show where we bring you a taste of the current craft beer industry. We're shaking up the yeast on craft breweries. Are their business models rich and full-bodied, or have they gone bad? Are they sustainable? Are their models replicable for other craft industries? So join us on this voyage to find out. We're your hosts, Byron, Jordan, Shane, and Ben. And on today's show, how Lester Koga and his friends started Bear Bottle Brewing Company, and how their supply chain is something other industries can take note of. You ever wonder what's inside your glass? Whether it's small batch from your home brewer friend or big batch from the big three, your beer has just trekked a long journey. And often it's not easy to brew up a smooth supply chain. From ingredient sourcing to production to packaging and distribution, brewers run into many problems and considerations. For craft brewers, there are conflicts between sustainability and economies of scale, and supporting local farmers and communities in highlighting imported styles. Every day, there are more pieces to the puzzle. On today's episode, I sit down with Lester Koga, one of the co-founders of Bear Bottle Brewing Company in San Francisco, California. He'll walk us through Bear Bottle's own supply chain and the values and choices they make at each step of the process. We'll even talk about his own journey into beer and take a look into the beginnings of Bear Bottle. And I gotta tell you, their stuff is delicious. Let's have a listen. Today we are drinking a few beers from Beer Bottle. I know you're a Berkeley alum, which is awesome. Yep. Maybe talk about that and then go into how Beer Bottle got started. Sure. Originally from Fresno, so did my undergrad at Berkeley, was an environmental economics and policy major. Uh, met my fiance there in the dorms. Uh, she's a, she was a sociology education double major. And we've kind of, you know, been together ever since. And, you know, I went from Berkeley to, I was a city planner for a few years when got my MBA from Cornell. And that's where I met uh, my two other business partners here at Bear Model. And after business school, we went out and did our kind of our own, you know, white collar, white collar job thing. I was at General Electric for, for close to 10 years. And, you know, after a while, you know, Myself, my friends, you know, from business school, you know, we always wanted to do a business together, and we really got into to craft beer uh, around business school time, and we got into home brewing, and we got into beer judging, and so we would judge, we would be certified judges, and we would judge homebrew competitions. The beer being made by home brewers, you know, the ones that won the competition or the final in different categories, without a doubt, were better than ninety percent of all commercial beers being made. Mm. And so that was kind of a, a big kind of eye-opening point to us that, you know, homebrewing, you know, eight, nine years ago had this stigma of people kind of making beer in their bathtubs. But, you know, everything that the really good homebrewers were doing were so clean and so sophisticated and so unique and so different. And so we had this idea that, you know, what if we did a brewery, you know, production brewery and tap room? in San Francisco where the big core focus of what we did is focusing on homebrewing. 
And so what we do is every quarter we run homebrew competitions. You know, there is this kind of lore in the industry that, you know, all the great beards come from, you know, a great singular brewer, your head brewer. But we saw it as, you know, if you only have one head brewer coming up with all the recipes and all the ideas, then everything that you make always comes from only one perspective. You know, it's theirs. Uh, but when you're able to kind of democratize the process of recipe and beer development, um, you're able to kind of open up the window uh, of all that's possible. You know, you enter one of our beer competitions and you win, and your name and your beer and your recipes on the shelves of Whole Foods or on the draft board at Tornado. And you know, to me, like that's that's the greatest satisfaction. Is you know, I've got a lot of friends, and I'm friends with all the home brewers in in the Bay Area community, and. You know, for the winners to have their beers on draft tornado, that's that's pretty cool. Like as a home brewer, that's when you know you've made it. When yeah, you know your beer is on the on the draft board at some of the great beer bars, you know, in the area and and on the shelves at some of the great bottle shops. I love that. Um, it's funny you talk about how beer is constantly changing. I had a nightmare when I first turned twenty one. I was at a a bar at our my my hometown and. I was sitting down for happy hour, and then I saw this guy who comes in. He's like 55, 60 years old, just by himself, going up to the bar and ordering a beer. And I, I, I answered a little bit, thinking, man, what is it about beer that makes people come in year after year after year after year, doing the same routine, going up, asking for what's new, and drinking it, right? Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until I really started drinking more beer where I realized, no, this thing is super complex. There's a lot of nuance, and that's what makes it exciting, right? That yeah. you can do so much with it. It's always changing. There are new things coming out, and... Um, understanding that nuance is kind of the beauty of it, I, I believe. Yep. Uh, you talked a little bit about um, the different processes, right? Whether it's like the yeast, the water, um, the grain, um, and the hops, right? Uh, yep. That's a good segue into what the goal of the episode is. It's understanding the supply chain here at Bear Bottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could do kind of like a brief overview of uh, the different processes and the, the different like steps as well, whether you can start from the supplier, you can, talk about the production, the packaging, to the sure. distribution. I would love to just get a general overview of that from you. Sure. Yeah, so I think our supply chain is is not unlike you know anybody else's supply chain, uh, whether you're you know a small craft brewery like us or you're Anheuser-Busch. You know, it, it's, roughly, it's roughly the same because we use roughly the same ingredients. Mm. So starting off from kind of the, the raw material side, uh, the, main, the main kind of ingredient by poundage beyond water in a beer is barley. So yep. it's malted barley. And then you have all the different kind of cereal grains that we use, especially in hazy beers, uh, which are getting a lot more popular now. You're seeing you know, a lot of oats, both raw and malted, you know, used, you know, wheat, you know, raw and flaked wheats, you know, being used. Um, all these different grains that, uh, that add different color, different texture, different visuals, different mouthfeel, you know, all contribute, you know, a different nuance to a beer. Mm-hmm. And they have all the really dark specialty malts. So, you know, chocolate, you know, roasted barley, the things to make a stout. You know, we use probably two major grain suppliers, both based out of San Leandro, Country Malt Group and Brewer Supply Group. Uh, The yeast comes from a lot of different sources as well. Uh, Two of the biggest sources that we use are White Labs out of San Diego uh, and then Giga Yeast out of San Jose, formerly out of Belmont. And so they're just yeast banks. They just continue to grow different size, volume, batches of yeast for the professional and the homebrewing market. And they basically cultivate strains from beer styles around the world. 
and each individual yeast gives its own character, will operate in its own specific way. Water, you know, we use the, the local municipal water source here, which is Hesh Heshi. Uh, we just go through a carbon filtration, uh, and then we add the different salts, whether it's sulfate or calcium chloride, to kind of get the different, uh, kind of different mouthfeel levels that we want out of the beer. You know, the, the hops are interesting as well because the majority of hops grown in America are grown in Oregon and Washington. And that's probably the biggest challenge for all craft brewers right now is everyone is looking for the, the newest hop, you know, the different hops that give you different aroma and flavors. Uh, costs for hops get really expensive. You know, the, the base hops that you typically use are around, so say a Cascade or a Centennial are in the, you know, six to $9 a pound range. You know, for hops like Galaxy, Enigma, um, Nelson Sabin, like Mosaic, they're in the, you know, 18 to $22 a pound range. And it's one of those things where, you know, you keep adding more because you want more and more flavor, more and more aroma, but, you know, it comes obviously at an expense. Right. But, you know, for us, you know, we consider ourselves craftsmen, we consider ourselves artists, and, you know, we don't, we don't manage our beer by the numbers, we, we manage it by, you know, what we think is great and fun. Maybe we can move into the production side then. Sure. So you can probably go into, um, for the people who don't know about beer on the podcast, literally just like the, the general recipe and then also sure. how you expand that and scale that out into your brewery here. Yeah. So really the, on the production side, it's, you know, on a professional brewery, it's not much different than what home brewers do. Um, but really you start with the malted barley, you add water to it. And so typically you add... You know, you want to you add hot water to get a, a mash temperature of around 150 degrees, and that's where you get a lot of the enzymatic conversion, you know, of all the starches uh, into sugar. And so you want that kind of sugar breakdown from the starches because that becomes the base for the yeast to consume. So you do kind of that steep for about 45 minutes or an hour, you know, the, the grain, the crushed grain within the water, and then you kind of pull off just the liquid. You don't need the grain at that point and you move it to the boil kettle. And in the boil kettle, you'll boil for 60 to 90 minutes, and that's where you do some hop additions, depending on the kind of beer that you're making. You know, but really you're kind of caramelizing the sugars in the beer, you're kind of adding it more dimension. You're also kind of sanitizing the liquid, so you're pasteurizing it essentially. And then from there, you we put it in a whirlpool tank, and the whirlpool tank does exactly as it sounds. It just kind of circulates you know, the liquid, and it basically, using centrifugal force, like, brings, like, the heavier sediments to the center, so you can drop it out, so you're pulling off just clear liquid. It goes through a heat exchanger, so you essentially go from near boiling temperature at 200 plus degrees, it goes through a heat exchanger, and instantly you go into a fermenting tank at 68 to 70 degrees, which is the optimal temperature for the yeast. Uh, so then you pitch the yeast, you have a full tank of, of beer, and you let it do its thing. And roughly 10 days later, uh, the yeast is done with all of its kind of conversion of the sugars into alcohol. Uh, and then throughout, especially for IPAs, that process of fermentation, you dry hop. And the term dry hopping is really just adding hop pellets or whole hop cones, depending on the kind that you're using. Uh, basically to not extract any bitterness and you're really just pumping up flavor and aroma at that point mostly aroma awesome uh, can you talk a little bit more about the production capacity here at the brewery sure so we're a 20 barrel brew house so the hot side of brewing is 20 barrels a brewing barrel is 31 gallons 
uh, which is roughly two full-size kegs that you see at bars. So we brewed 20 barrel batches at a time. Uh, we're actually sized a little bit up to 25 barrel batches. Uh, so we'll typically do two turns of 25 barrel batches into our fermenters. Uh, so we always double batch our 40 barrel fermenters. You know, they're twice the size of our hot side tank. So we will, we're able to brew twice, you know, into the, uh, the tank and get 40, you know, 40 barrels of liquid. So roughly 1,200 gallons. Do you guys package here in-house or do you get, uh, from what I've heard in other breweries, they use something called the can van. It's yeah, we don't use a can van. We use the, the bottle van equivalent of the can van. Okay. So uh, they, they pull up on a truck, and all the equipment is self-contained on the truck. It's a 24-head rotary bottle filler. So it's a, it's a million-dollar setup that you know, we can just pay the variable cost of production of individual bottles and cases versus investing a million dollars into our own line. And we only bottle once a month, but we keg three to four times a week. Gotcha. So it sounds like a lot of the distribution goes to more restaurants, tap houses, more so than, uh, I know mean you said you're in Whole Foods as well. We're in Whole Foods, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that distribution process? Yeah, so we're completely self-distributed. So that's one of the fun things with being um, a craft brewery. For us, it was important to own all the relationships from cradle to grave. So you know, all the brewers you know, are ours, right? Everything in bare bottles, self-contained. We opened about 20 months ago with five employees. We have 30 employees now. Mm. Um, every every aspect of the business has grown, uh, especially the production side, uh, just so we can keep beer in stock. Uh, we have our own sales team, so our own sales team goes out and makes relationships and services all of our tap and bottle accounts. Uh, we have our own delivery vans, our own delivery drivers, so we deliver beer throughout the Bay Area. Um, and so for us, it was really important to kind of have those critical, deep relationships with everybody we sell beer to because, you know, we are not going to sell beer to a place that we don't want to go to, you know, because for us, it's a passion project. It's, you know, we want to be in the best bars because those are the beer bars that we drink at. want to get great restaurants because those are the restaurants that we eat at, yeah. you know, and that to me is one of the most rewarding parts of owning a brewery is you know, having those relationships, you know, having those relationships with the food and dining scene in the Bay Area, because to me, it's, it's some of the best in the world. I'm curious what uh, you know about just like the big three or yep. the, the bigger macro breweries and how, yep. um, particularly how you, your process is different from theirs. Mm-hmm. You can maybe talk about the ability to have more autonomy here or the economies of scale probably a little better at the macro. Sure. Yeah. The, the big thing, like you said, is economies of scale. Yeah. You know, we're doing 20 barrels at a time, you know, batches. They're doing 100 to 200 barrel batches or more at a time. So scale is one, you know, on the production side, but also it's a scale on the sourcing side. Right now they're buying you know, barley and rice and hops at a whole different scale than, than what we're doing. Um, but also to, like you said, the autonomy piece, you know, for us, we're not beholden to anybody. You know, we're, you know, we, we've really done a lot of work with our accounts to get them to trust the brand versus trusting the beer or the style. You know, by that I mean, you know, we want people to say, oh, Bare Bottles IPA, it's going to be different every time. It's going to be great. I don't need to know like which one it is or you know what's in it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to put it on draft. Um, versus 
you know, Coors or Bud, right? They're selling Bud Light. They're selling Coors Light. They're selling Sierra Nevada's Pale Ale. They need to make their core styles because that's what people buy, you know, versus us. We want people to, you know, trust the brands and we're going to come out with different styles, different beers. And, you know, we hope that they buy it because again, like we don't want, we don't want to get stuck in the scenario where we only make one beer over and over again, because to us, that's boring. Yeah. What's the overall commitment to the local community which you're brewing in? And um, like you said, you have a whole network of distributors, but also maybe even touch on um, the commitment to working with local farmers and local sure. sourcing. Yeah, so local is getting yeah, it's getting bigger and bigger in the brewing side. You know, in the last few years, during or pre-prohibition, uh, there were more breweries pre-prohibition in America than there ever was in the history of America up until, I think, 2012 or 2013. You know, it was every little town, you know, had their own brewery. And I think we're kind of getting back to that, you know, locally made, locally sourced, you know, a local place where you can enjoy, you know, fresh beer. You know, in this growing world of, you know, sameness and blandness and, you know, mass production, like, I think we're seeing this, like, pendulum shift back towards people being individuals and individual choices and you know i think people are looking for more authenticity they're looking for more things that are real that are have a meaning that have a story you know beyond just oh you know this can of beer was made in fairfield yeah right i think people are looking for for more meaning in especially what they consume and beer is just kind of in my mind like at the forefront of that right absolutely. now absolutely um and but you find when you do that, I think is uh, this bounty of synergistic opportunities, right? Sure. Whether it's like building more job opportunities in the community that you're in, bringing more wealth to all the different aspects of the supply chain, yep. and how that trickles down, it's almost a beautiful thing. Yep. My next question actually goes back to one of the biggest problems in, in beer in general, is just the sustainability of it, right? So you talk about the energy usage, you talk about the water usage, I think for the hops that we use, or you use, so much water goes into not just the production, but also just, yeah. just growing the, the thing. Yep. So uh, what is your commitment to sustainability in this brewery? Yeah, that's a great question. And I feel like that's where the bigger breweries are actually doing a better job than the craft breweries are. Uh, since there's a lot, of, a lot of technology that's used uh, kind of on the bigger scale end of things, uh, which is you know, things like energy recapture, things like you know, um, using the waste products from, you know, fermentation and from the tube that you pull off from the tanks. You use that to, to compost, you use that to create more energy, um, water reclamation projects. So companies like Lagunitas and Sierra Nevada are really at the forefront of this. It's a challenge for us on the smaller side because, you know, a lot of those kind of capital intensive projects are extremely expensive. Absolutely. And you need to... You need to be kind of at a pretty large scale to recoup the benefits of that. You know, we don't just kind of willy-nilly just dump water down the drain. You know, we're constantly trying to, to find ways where, you know, we're minimizing the water usage, you know, both from a cost standpoint as well as, as from a sustainability standpoint. Yeah, I think that's something that I found in my research that was surprising, that it is like the bigger breweries that are able to do more, and it makes sense because of the, the economies of scale there and also just the bigger impact that they can do yep. with the capital that they have. I'm curious that 
even in just the beverage and the food industry in general, there's this almost incredible flow of wealth coming in uh, where venture capitalists are much more excited about the industry, whether it's on the agriculture side or maybe even the um, the production side as well. I'm curious to see if there are any new technologies that you're excited about and also what you think is exciting about that flow of wealth coming in. Sure. Um, I think from the technology side, I mean, for me, you know, technology is always a means to the end. Right? And to me, the end point is great flavor. If it helps us, it's great. If it's, you know, technology for technology's sake, you know, I could care less because, you know, my goal is to make the best tasting beer we can possibly make. One question I always like to ask on the podcast mm-hmm. is what our overall research question is. And it's whether the business model of craft breweries is replicable across other industries. Uh, this episode's all about the supply chain of beer. And I'm curious, sure. on that perspective, how do you feel like that is replicable across other industries? Say it's coffee, say it's koji. It's funny you mentioned koji since I picked up about 30 gallons of koji <laughs> yesterday. Um, so we do, uh, so once, just- a, once a year, we do a, uh, a sake beer. So like, in terms of kind of the, you know, the sustainability of it all, I feel like it's absolutely replicable. And I feel like, you know, one of the key things with, with craft beer is, you know, it's a, it's a great way to enjoy, you know, enjoy products and enjoy food and beverage, like at its site of production. And I feel like that's kind of the key element that can be transferable to, to anything, you know, like to me, like I love, you know, there's tartine, you know, bakery, you know, whether it's the bakery itself or the manufactory where, you know, like Chad Roberts does such amazing bread, you know, just this traditional, you know, method of sourdough bread, you know, with his culture and, and kind of the leaven and everything. It's just, it's, it's amazing. And it's not me walking into Safeway buying Wonder Bread, you know, where you're, you're completely closing the loop of, of consumption. You know, you understand and you see, you know, firsthand, you know, where things are made, you know, so you know what's going into the body of yourself as well as your family. And to me, like, that's incredibly important. You know, so in other, you know, kind of coffee, coffee realms, coffee's a little bit tough uh, because... I don't know of very many locally grown beans, but that that's fine too because I feel like you know what we get is all these third wave coffee producers, you know, the sight glasses, the blue bottles of the world. They're very very big in the micro lots. They're very big, and you know, you and I can't go to you know Sulawesi and and get beans or Java and get beans yeah. and meet the coffee grower and pick the beans, but. These professionals know what they're doing, who are putting in the legwork to find the great producers. You know, even though those beans weren't grown locally, we know there was absolutely a local hand, you know, in that step of production. And it's great to go to their coffee shop. And I feel like people, you know, more and more now are feeling kind of more empowered, are more inspired to make things at home and you know, seek out the producers who are doing things different and are willing to pay more money for it. Um, Michael Pollan, journalist, uh, writer from from Berkeley, you know, his big thing is is eat less, eat better. And I feel like he's absolutely right, you know? Like, drink less coffee, you know? You don't need to drink, you know, a super-sized mug of coffee from, you know, from wherever, but drink, like, a great 8-, 12-ounce drip from an individual single-origin coffee, you know, made at your local coffee shop. They're doing such great things, and they're putting their, 
their heart and soul into it and of opening people's eyes to you know what the process is and so you can enjoy it and have a greater appreciation of it and then tell your friends yeah, I think Pollen's whole thing, like you're talking about, is you eat with your fork, you vote with your fork, yep. you vote with your cup, and it's where you go and how you decide as a conscious eater to decide what the future is. And it's a beautiful part. Lester Koga, co-founder of Bear Bottle Brewing Company over in Bernal Heights. You know, the first time we met, he even taught me a little bit about San Francisco geography. So I'm here with Lester Koga from Bear Bottle over here in Bernal Heights. Plus, you want to say hi? It's Bernal Heights, but hi. Is it Bernal Heights? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I've only been here 20, uh, 21 years, and I still don't know that. I'm putting the shame. <laughs> it could be Bern- Bernal Heights. I've, I've never heard a single resident here pronounce it that way, but <laughs> you learn things every day. It could be wrong. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and join us next time on the Hoptastic Voyage. Our show today was produced by myself, Ben Ye, Byron Lowe, Jordan Sushar, Shane Wright. Music help from Ben Tiso of Ben Sound. Get royalty-free music at bensound.com. A special thanks to Professor Kathy DeMaster and her team of incredible graduate student instructors. Adam Kalo, Aide Guzman, Marjana Peterson-Rockney, Myra Montenegro, Robert Parks, and Laura Driscoll. See you next episode on Fantastic Voyage.